Hello everyone, it's February 18th, 2020, so there are four final contenders for NASA's Discovery Program, four explorers of other worlds. I wish they could all win, but at least two of them might be selected, and, well, that's twice as good as just one. So let's see what we can discover, and liftoff! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 248 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Anything to talk about? Uh, Crew Dragon now has an NET. Oh, yes. It is what, June? I believe May seventh. Okay. Ah. Wow. May seventh. All right. Well, so not too long. That'll be that'll be exciting. That's something I definitely uh, can get jazzed about. It's gonna be the first time. Uh, I don't know. We've got like the uh, futuristic looking, uh, you know, SpaceX knots. You know, those suits look so much less cool when they're not like motorcycle <laughs> suit fitted, right? It might just be that when you saw. The initial renders, it was just that they had, you know, someone with like a perfect body in them. But, you know, <laughs> this isn't like a swimsuit model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think that's part of it. But also like these are clearly less less well fitted than mm-hmm. than the motorcycle mm-hmm. suit. But yeah, uh, Sam in the chat says space wellies, which cracks me up because they, they really do look like they're wearing rubber boots. I'm get they give me the sense of like a sci fi film mm-hmm. or TV show. Uh, what the characters that they don't care about and are going to get killed off might wear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Like, they're not going to yeah. make it back from Planet Thorax that's, or whatever. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, some kind of like a day labor, you know, like, you know, a yeah. plumber in space. Space plumber. Um, and are, are the hoods still, or is the, are the visors still shaded? Cause it doesn't look like it in the, in the actual NASA photo. Oh yeah. No, they're just, yeah. they just look like clear glass. Yeah. I don't know why they would need to be shaded, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Ju- just publicity, right? Right. Still, they look good. They just, you know. Yeah. This is badass. With any luck on May 7th, we'll get to see those spacesuits in action and the crew dragon. But, uh, I guess until then, we can move on to the actual news. So we finally have some contenders down-selected for the Discovery program, not all the way. So traditionally, I guess there was just one person, or one person, there was just uh, hmm. one proposal that was selected, but this time they're actually going for two. So there's Discovery, there's the flagship, which is higher up, and then there's another one, which is higher up too. New Frontiers. New Frontiers, yeah. So yeah. this is kind of like the mid-level missions that are selected by NASA, so they're somewhere in a certain range of money that they would commit to this. This is not over a billion dollars, but this is like, you know, around the $500 million mark. So it's not the highest and it's not the lowest. Exactly. There, there's the multiple different classes. And so I had to uh, go back and uh, convince myself that I didn't already see this in the news because hmm. it was the uh, down selection of the new frontiers that recently happened, right? That's mm-hmm. when Dragonfly got selected from that group of uh, uh, nine or so missions. And so, yeah, discovery missions uh, have been things like Mars Pathfinder, Stardust, Messenger, Dawn, a lot of these uh, classic ones going to uh, various locations in our uh, solar system. This selection is to basically uh, fund uh, nine-month studies, uh, three million bucks to each of these four uh, missions, to basically uh, come up with a concept study report to basically really make the case, and then it gets down-selected to the final two, uh, although their language says up to two missions, so technically, mm-hmm. uh, I guess they could just do uh, one or potentially none, but this <laughs> there that would be yeah. a shame. Well, remember remember last time around, uh, Discovering 13 and 14 were Lucy and Psyche, and they both got selected. Um, they exactly. did two at once. So, so that's, that's why your, your favorite is Lucy, right? I mean, like, as far as missions go, Ben, I get the sense. Oh, that. yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm <laughs> obsessed with Lucy. 
Look, Psyche is cool as well. Like I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I can't piss on any, especially discovery. I mean, like you can't, they're mm -hmm. amazing programs or amazing vehicles, but yeah, Lucy, I'm so excited for. So yeah, those were 13 and 14. So these are going to be the future uh, discovery 15 and 16. And so hopefully we'll uh, figure this out uh, in 2021. So I guess, wow, next year, uh, is when, uh, the final selection, uh, should take place. And then, uh, the launches are going to, uh, occur in one of two windows, either, uh, in, uh, 2025 or 2026, pretty much any time during that, uh, those two calendar years, or, uh, from July of 2028 to December of 2029. And, uh, we'll see there's a bit of a variety of locations. Uh, I mean, there's, well, there's Venus, there's Io, and there's Triton. So, so uh, either nearby or, uh, pretty darn far away. So mm -hmm. I guess we could just start with the first, uh, the first of these four, uh, the Da Vinci Plus mission. And so a theme, uh, I, I noticed, uh, doing a little research for this is that a lot of these have been shopped around, um, for these different programs, uh, like Discovery or New Horizon, uh, New Frontiers. And, um, you know, sometimes their name changes, the mission evolves and all, but these, you know, these have a concept with a PI and yeah, they just get shopped around and evolve over time. And so Da Vinci uh, Plus is an acronym, the Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging Plus. So uh, I guess I'll just say par for the course as far as acronyms go. Da Vinci's cool. I mean, as far as a human being goes. And so this one is a uh, uh, an in-situ atmospheric probe uh, that also contains an imaging instrument. So the, the real name of the game of this one is to figure out what's going on with Venus's atmosphere. And so, yeah, exactly like Dan's saying in the chat, it was just Da Vinci last time. And so uh, uh, it was a finalist uh, last round, uh, the last discovery round. And so now it's it's kind of back and uh, with that plus clearly must be better than ever. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that's really cool about this mission is it is going to launch a probe into the Venusian atmosphere and that's going to be on a parachute. Um, but what's interesting is that it will actually take about 63 minutes to hit the surface because I, I'm assuming just because of how thick the atmosphere is, that's a very long descent through a very thick atmosphere. So yeah, during that time, it's just going to collect as much data as it can. But um, mm. I don't know what, what happens once it hits the surface. Is uh, there still work to be done or or are they expecting it to completely melt? From what I had read, it's designed to survive uh, reaching the surface, but I don't know so much about it having, I guess, uh, kind of like an extended surface-based mission. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like sampling the atmosphere at the surface is kind of like what it really wants to do rather than... Oh, actually, no. Uh, as I'm thinking about it now, one of the key things, uh, I mentioned it has that imaging instrument. And so there's this kind of... Uh, a very messy terrain on Venus called uh, the Tesserae. And so it's kind of like, um, it's not quite like chaos terrain, but it's, it seems like it's kind of jumbly sort of mountains is my interpretation as a non-geologist. And so the kind of question there is whether or not this terrain is happening or formed kind of at the same time through a lot of chaotic competing processes, or if that you're seeing different uh, geologic formations and terrains and landforms at different times and then kind of intersecting each other in a complex looking way. And so, uh, I mean, getting to see that all the way down to the surface is uh, a big part of it, but mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's going to reach the surface and then, you know, 
do anything totally different that it wasn't already doing on the descent. Which, as you pointed out, right, is a really long descent. <laughs> yeah. And I could be wrong about this because of the way there was a phrasing in the document that they had submitted to the uh, LPSC, Lunar and Planetary Science Conference. Um, but I think it might get down to parts per billion by volume sensitivities. So that's like trace, trace gases that it'll be able to pick up. And to do that for the entire atmosphere, that'll be really, really unprecedented. Because we can talk at the end about which one or ones are each of our favorites. Uh, I definitely have my opinion of which ones I would like to see go more than anything. <laughs> but uh, this one, I mean, they're all really a big deal in different ways. And that's why this one is kind of pinning down Venus's atmosphere in an unprecedented amount of detail. And, you know, Venus, they, you know, we say it's Earth's twin. And then... It kind of went on its own path to the, you know. It's Earth's evil twin. Super, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Exactly. The hellish uh, uh, hellscape that it is uh, today. And so kind of understanding that difference uh, would be really exciting as far as, you know, scientists are concerned. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, Da Vinci is one of the programs that is not a candidate for an extended mission. Yeah. What, yeah. Once, once you're on Venus, you have, you know, like an hour to collect your, your atmospheric data. And then, you know, maybe a little bit of time on the surface to collect a little more data, but you're done. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to have a, a program with a period at the end, you know? Yeah. I'm wondering if, you know, I guess it depends on what comes out of those concept study reports, how big of a factor uh, that will be in NASA's decision ultimately. That kind of puts me in mind of a concept for a mission where you would drop a series of very, you know, like low cost probes into the atmosphere. Would that mm -hmm. be feasible? Because that sounds like something that might be a little bit more, you might be able to gather a bit more data if you did that, just because you would have several data points too. You'd like, you wouldn't just be dropping this one thing, but you could drop one here, then drop one somewhere else. Quantity over quality. Quality. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that basically what the U.S. did with the, uh, what was it, the Pioneers? Like there was the Venus Pioneer missions, but they, they all went, they all went separately. I think, I think what David is talking about is like spitting out a bunch of, of microsats from one. Yeah. Ooh. Which is a really cool idea. Um, and it just, you know, it's a, it's a different type of data collection is all. Yeah, Dan says carpet bomb Venus. The carpet bomb <laughs> carpet Venus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Sam in the chat points out Pioneer uh, had a uh, four probe mission. Okay. Mm. So, but just scale it up though, right? Yeah. I mean, using 21st century technology and yeah. So that's uh, Da Vinci Plus. The next one up is uh, Ivo, I suppose. <laughs> uh, the Io Volcano Explorer. So you say Io, not Eo. I say Io. I mean, I, I know it. I know it differs, but I, my instinct is to say Eo. That makes more sense, but I keep hearing everyone say Io instead because yeah. I guess that's just you know the that's just the English way of pronouncing it. Yeah. With a long I. I'll be the first to admit, like I will continue to mispronounce the plural of supernovae as supernovae instead of supernovae. So, <laughs> yeah, so the uh, the Io Volcano Explorer, as you can imagine, is a mission to Io to explore the volcanoes there. So this is the uh, the innermost of the four Galilean moons of Jupiter, uh, most volcanically active object in the solar system. Uh, it's driven by tidal heating from uh, both Jupiter as well as the resonance orbits it has with Europa and Ganymede. So uh, we're talking, uh, especially with the lower gravity there, plumes that are reaching out to, you know, basically uh, where the space station orbits Earth. You know what I mean? Like hundreds of kilometers up high. You guys, I'm sure you guys, right, uh, have seen the wonderful, wonderful GIF that 
was a bunch of frames made by New Horizons when it flew by yeah. Jupiter. Yeah. Yeah, you can see the fountain effect of the volcanoes. And so um, the idea is to basically get a sense of what's going on with this tidal heating, where it's generated, how it's transported to the surface. Um, there's a bit of controversy as to whether or not Io has a magma ocean. And so this would be able to discriminate between that and a few different other models of what might be happening uh, in Io's interior. And it's not an Io orbiter. Instead, it gets to Jupiter and orbits Jupiter in a, you know, super, you know, highly eccentric orbit to stay uh, out of the radiation field as much as possible, but uh, can build on the uh, the technology that was developed with Juno uh, for kind of withstanding uh, Jupiter's radiation field. And so uh, it would involve 10 uh, IO flybys from pole to pole. And they're chosen at, you know, all these different longitudes to be able to uh, make the kind of measurements uh, to discriminate what's going on in IO's interior, as well as, you know, do some remote sensing and uh, maybe some in situ uh, measurements as well. Because I know one of the flybys I read, they wanted to fly over the Pele volcano, which uh, would be pretty sick. Yeah, this one has been proposed many times before. Uh, there was a version called just the Io Orbiter that competed as a New Frontiers mission, but uh, did not win in that particular round. No. It's interesting because Evo was originally um, submitted to the New Frontiers program and is now mm-hmm. in Discovery. So it's kind of kind of interesting to see uh, maybe a, a a better fit. I don't know. Right. I don't. Yeah. They must have come up with some cost savings, presumably. Yeah. Well, I think that that might be one of the reasons why there's even two missions that will be selected is just because you know the costs have come down. Mm. And then yeah, and then the next one is Trident. So this is <laughs> which is a good name, um, mm. which is a flyby of Triton or Triton. Triton. I don't know. I don't know how to say that one either. I just say I Triton. always say Triton. Triton. Yeah, which is really cool. I think because this one is like you know much further out, or I think it's much further out in the solar system. I don't know how much further Neptune is, but it seems to be you know out. Oh, at 30 AU and Jupiter's. Uh, uh, yeah. What, five? Five, yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah, so. this is way out there. And Triton's such a cool moon. Um, we've mm-hmm. like mentioned it before. It's It orbits retrograde, so it's probably a captured object. And so that's just so interesting. And I don't know, there's mm-hmm. just something about Triton that's fascinating to me. So I think I've made the joke before that if Triton wasn't captured by Neptune, everybody would be complaining about how Triton's still a planet and it shouldn't have been demoted <laughs> and whatnot because <laughs> uh, it's it's bigger than Pluto and closer. So, so I, I want to know how much Triton, how much data Triton's going to be able to collect um, on Neptune itself because I, I think Neptune is sort of an underserved uh, but also interesting planet. Mm-hmm. Right. We've never put anything in orbit of Neptune. Is it is it one of the Voyagers went there, right? Has anybody else ever gone to to Neptune? I mean it just No. That's why I step it back a bit. If honestly, all these missions are awesome. I would rather have a Uranus orbiter than any of these. Well and and don't forget, Triton is gonna be doing a flyby of EO. So like (laughs) you know, I mean obviously an E uh an EO centric mission is is a very different thing, but like, I mean, it's like two for one, like the farther out in the solar <laughs> system you go, the more flybys you get to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I didn't see what it was going to do uh, as far as uh, uh, Neptune is concerned. Uh, but I'm sure, I mean, as trying to sell this as much as possible, I'm sure they're going to have probably as like a lower level science case that, oh yes, we'll also be able to tag on these, you know, X, Y, and Z observations of Neptune that'll kind of pad things a little bit. So, so is this just a fly, or, or is it not going into orbit of of Neptune? 
Oh, That's, no, it's a flyby. According to Wikipedia, it would ideally be launched in 2026, but it wouldn't get to Neptune until 2038. So, mm-hmm. yeah, which is, you know, to be expected. So I assume that since this is a flyby, this is not a transfer orbit. This is trying to get there as fast as possible, and it still takes, you know, 10 years or so, or 12 years. So mm-hmm. a flyby is the best they can do. I guess just like the New Horizons, right? Like, it's hard to get something into orbit without it taking, I suppose, another 50 years or something. I don't know what the time would be, but... Like Sam's saying, I mean, I, I brought up the icy giant orbiters just because that's something that I just would like to see more. Mm-hmm. But um, those those are not really yet. Uh, those are more of a flagship class mission, uh, not a discovery. But it, it is cool, though, that, you know, it'll be able to map the entire surface but i don't know if that means like pluto mapped or sorry new horizons mapped the entire surface of pluto but you know the one man was very low resolution but it sounds like at least in the uh the documents i saw that it would be pretty good you know resolution over the entire surface in a single flyby because i mean Right, New Horizons, that was, when you think about when that started getting developed, that was a long time ago. So yeah, getting within 500 kilometers of uh, Triton. So it'll, the, the key, well, I don't know if it's the key, but one of the key things to figure out is whether or not Triton actually has a subsurface ocean or not, or the geysers and plumes that are, you know, have been seen, right? Like Ben was talking about when Voyager 2 flew by, that whether or not you can... uh or whether or not that's coming from just uh, basically nitrogen ices sublimating subsurface and then blasting out these geysers, or whether or not you actually have a, a subsurface ocean of uh, water and liquid nitrogen sloshed together like that. So I do like the name, though, a lot. <laughs> How it's very Neptunian. There's just like a good solid theme mm-hmm. there. And uh, apparently they didn't try to make it into an acronym, so... That's always nice. (laughs) Yeah, that is a little refreshing, isn't it? So in the show notes will be a link to an article in Spaceflight Magazine. Um, Thank you, Sam, for linking us to that. That has um, a a pretty good overview of the mission as well as some really nice diagrams of uh, the trajectories it's going to fly and and some descriptions of the science it's planning on doing. So um, do check that out. Just a... A quick shout out, right? As far as uh, naming conventions go, Dr. Erica Hamden, we had on the show uh, with mm-hmm. her uh, proposed uh, mission. Uh, what was the name of that again? It was it was a good name. It was was it Halcyon or it was something like that? Hyperion. Hyperion. There Hyperion. you go. Halcyon Hyperion. Okay, I can see where my Close. brain was yeah. going. <laughs> so I make a shout out to like that as an awesome non-acronym name for a space mission. So what's the last mission we have? Uh, rounding us out, right? We got a uh, Veritas, which which is a second Venus mission, where that stands for the Venus Emissivity Radio Science INSAR Topography and Spectroscopy, uh, where INSAR, this one is is an orbiter of Venus, but it's got two primary instruments, possibly two, only two instruments. Uh, And the INSAR is referring to the Interferometric uh, Synthesis Aperture Radar Mapper. And so the idea is that it's going to do this... uh, Synthetic. It's synthetic. I I knew that was coming out all wrong when I was saying that. (laughs) Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar. I got to split those two for my brain to be able to say it correctly. And so um, this is essentially, uh, as far as I can interpret it, uh, this would be a 
uh, next generation order of magnitude better mapper of the Venusian surface than uh, Magellan from back in the 90s. And so uh, that's kind of one of the things, uh, one of the two main instruments. And the other one is a uh, emissivity mapper. So basically uh, identifying where, you know, heat is coming from the Venusian surface and then differences along there, correlating them with uh, topographic features. Uh, I did see a mention that, you know, maybe they would include a nanosat probe, or if they uh, go down David's road, maybe they'll include a uh, uh, thousand nanosat probes to just <laughs> uh, sprinkle into the atmosphere. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know much else to say about this one other than uh, uh, all the, when you see the surface of Venus, you're either looking at a close-up image from a Venera spacecraft, or you're looking at reconstructed images from radar uh, from Magellan. And so that's almost certainly where you're looking. <laughs> so this would just kind of give us a better sense of what's going on there. So uh, we interviewed Mark Wallace ages ago. I just looked it up, episode 92. Um, I believe he's working on Veritas. Um, oh. So that's pretty cool. Well, I mean, and for that, partially that reason, I will reveal... The one I'm rooting for the most. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Io Volcano Explorer. Uh, not only because I want to, <laughs> yeah, not only do I want us, you know, uh, is Io such, I mean, it is really unique. I mean, every place is unique in different ways, but Io is really unique. And it also has some hometown, uh, a hometown person as a PI. He's a uh, Lunar and Planetary Laboratory guy. So I got to root for him <laughs> as well. What about you guys? Do you have uh, any, I, which of these would you, I you can't know, pick. Like they're see? all, they're all so cool. Um, mm -hmm. And, and none of them hit any of my real, like real personal favorites. Um, I mean, I, I, I love Venus atmospheric study or Venus surface operations. Um, but that's mm -hmm. not really what we're looking, you know, this isn't a Venus rover. I don't know. I mean, EO is pretty freaking cool. I got to admit, I, I love uh, volcanology. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would agree. I would like the Trident mission selected. The only mm -hmm. downside is it's just a flyby and it's going to take 12 years to get there. So... Yeah. I mean that that's uh that's Neptune in it. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to what get can you to. Do? Oh, and said <laughs> so did bring up. Yeah, this is such a good piece of trivia. I think I mentioned it one time off air, but like one of those pioneer uh, Venus probes <laughs> technically made it to the surface and <laughs> sent back a little data. So the US has landed on Venus as well. So, okay. So I think it's a little controversial to pick our favorite, well, not controversial. Um, I, I think it's a little difficult to pick our, our favorite of the four finalists. But do you guys have any favorites from the uh, the missions that were cut? I didn't look too carefully into them. I saw that there were, I mean, there's there were quite a few. Um, cause I think my favorite would be Chimera. Chimera was going to a comet. Oh, Centaur 29P slash Swashman Washman 1. And, uh, I was gonna study the quote unquote evolutionary middle ground between trans Neptunian objects and Jupiter family comets. So I, I am a, you know, everybody loves comets. I love comets. I love <laughs> orbiting comets. Um, and I think it'd be cool to go to a totally different type of comet. Having looked at these for the first time, uh, yeah. Moon Diver <laughs> sounds uh -huh. like the most out there. Uh, deploying a lunar rover to rappel down a deep pit 
and investigate yep. if the pit connects to a lava tube. I like that. Yeah, one. there's there's people at the yeah University of Arizona at their uh, aerospace uh, department that are looking into uh, uh, making hover bots. I guess I don't nice. know like how really else to call them. So that mm-hmm. way, specifically for things like lava tubes, they could explore yeah. and just kind of roll on down there and then hover to a different location if needed and whatnot. Uh, there there is also a, a mission that didn't make it called Hover. That was another Venus uh, Venus imager, um, and then. I think my other favorite is Mantis, the main belt asteroid and near Earth object tour with imaging a spectroscopy. And it was going to fly by 14 asteroids. Scanning these, I think I would have. Mantis sounds pretty awesome to me. I mean, that's just, that's a lot. Especially if they, yeah, there's so much variety when it comes to asteroids that you really uh, just want to get more and more and more of them to get a better sense of what's going on. Well, and the fact that it was going to be looking at main belt asteroids and NEOs, that's pretty neat. Let's just do two short and sweets. What's the first one, Dennis? Well, first up, JAXA selects partner for a country's first debris removal project. JAXA has announced that Astroscale Holdings will be the commercial partner for phase one of its debris removal project, which aims to remove an upper stage Japanese rocket body. The first phase, set to be demonstrated by the end of Japanese fiscal year 2022, will focus on observing the spent stage with the company responsible for the manufacturing, launch, and operations of the observing satellite. If awarded a follow-on contract, the company will have until the end of March 2026 to deorbit the rocket stage. Meanwhile, Astroscale intends to launch its LCD spacecraft to perform a similar mission in the latter half of this year. And then next up, Spaceway 1, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, has been safely decommissioned. The DirecTV satellite, which could have potentially exploded due to a battery issue, has been safely moved to its graveyard orbit. The Spaceway 1 satellite has been on solar power, posing no danger. However, that would have changed in late February when it would have had to switch to battery power due to an eclipse of the sun during its orbit. Fortunately, the satellite was able to be moved to a graveyard orbit of 500 kilometers above its operational geosynchronous orbit. This orbit is higher than the usual 300 kilometer disposal orbit, possibly because the operators wanted to consume or vent as much of the satellite's unused by propellant before shutting it down. Didn't we joke about that? Going to a, a, a graveyard's graveyard orbit? Well, no, I think I joked about just like sending it Oh, on, you wanted to send it to Mars, yeah. Yeah, just like, just like get it going and you just send it wherever it ends up. Like, just like get it far enough away that it's not a problem mm. but uh they i guess they did the next best thing and put it a couple hundred kilometers above the usual disposal orbit mm. so it's fine now yep. yeah that's cool okay stand by we're looking at it questions comments and correction burns and we got a big old doozy of a segment here so first up is merch which we haven't talked about in a while yeah but yeah we got some new swag yeah quick update on merch so um i have retitled right now you can buy t-shirts from um represent or you can buy um what i call mini merch pack um that comes straight from me um you know i do all the fulfilling i pack the envelopes and ship them and so i i originally had a really exact description of what's in there. And, um, you know, we're kind of beginning to run out of some of the first things that we had bought. And, um, and so I'm beginning to do some orders of, of new items. And so that's actually going to be more of a rotating merch pack. Um, you might get some things, you might get other things. It's mostly going to depend on, uh, what I have on hand, but I'm going to try to keep that thing packed full. So if you, if you buy it, um, expect as many things as I have on hand. Um, so right now, I've got magnets. I've got two different types of stickers. Um, we are still uh, on our 
first order of of embroidered patches. I think we got a hundred of them and we're getting down to the last like 20. So we're going to have to do um, a new embroidered patch at some point. Um, and I want to do a totally different design. Um, so our, our previous one was pretty simple and, and hopefully we can do something kind of different for the next one. Um, and then the, the really cool new thing that we just added was uh, I was on Twitter. I saw Sophie um, who I think I've talked about on the show before, um, she had some fun little pieces of art that she was showing off. She was doing a design for uh, for the Planetary Society. They they wanted a Curiosity rover, and so she had just posted um, the art that she had done of the wheels. Um, so I bugged her and got her to do um, a quick little update where it's uh, it's got the um, the JPL Morse code centered on the wheel. And then the wheel is now sitting on a little square section of Mars, uh, dirt. Um, and it's, it's a super cute design. Um, and so that I, I got them printed in like uh, two by two inches. Um, and so that sticker is now in the merch pack as well. Um, and then in the future, we're also going to be doing a really cool new, um, piece of merch, um, that will be teased on Twitter later this week. Um, it's not going to be in the mini merch pack. It's super, super cool. And it's something that we've been talking about doing for a while that I just, I've farmed out to, or I've suggested to a couple of different artists and, um, nothing really worked out. And, and Sophie took the idea and ran with it and really made it something that is so much more than, uh, than I was envisioning. And so that's very exciting. Um, that will be teased this week. It won't go on sale for a while because we still have to get it. Uh, manufactured and then uh, it's going to sell on its own. So it's going to wait until uh, our website gets updated because right now we only have room for um, one uh, direct, directly shipped item, um, which is right now the mini merch pack. So uh, th- there'll be a, a store update coming later that'll include that. But I just wanted uh, to give you guys a little bit of an update. Don't wait to buy a merch pack if you're thinking about doing it because it's not going to change with the new website. There'll just be more later. So yeah, there you go. That's that's your merch update. Then uh, uh, poor Ben Hallert. He's sent in a couple of corrections over the last couple of months and I've read them, gone, oh yeah, that's good. And then totally forgot about them and <laughs> failed to put them in the show. So, <laughs> so sorry, Ben. Here, here's an update that actually, uh, is going in the show. Oh boy. I, I said a bunch of dumb things last week. Um, so, uh, AS 103 was launched on a Saturn one, not a Saturn one B. Um, and so the Saturn one doesn't have an S4 or doesn't have an S4B upper stage. It's an S4 upper stage, um, which looks similar, but is, is a different uh, it's a different upper stage. Um, it's got, you know, different, uh, different engines. So it has, uh, six RL tens instead of one, uh, J two engine. So I, I just, I royally screwed that one up. I'm sorry. Um, and then, uh, Ben Hallard also, uh, in the chat pointed out a really interesting story that we didn't really get to cover because it's not really news, but I ran tweeted about a, uh, a spacesuit <laughs> and I didn't see this until mm-hmm. Ben pointed it out, um, tweeted about a brand new spacesuit. And then somebody went, Hey, wait, that doesn't look like a spacesuit. Um, well, Pretty much everybody went, Hey, wait, that doesn't look like a space. Yeah, Somebody no. actually went and found the actual item. It's a $22, um, costume you can buy on, on Amazon. So there'll be links to that in the show notes. Um, and then Aspen sent in a correction via email, actually two corrections. Thank you, Aspen. Uh, in episode, uh, 246. So that's, uh, two episodes ago. Uh, we were talking about Starship pressure tests. Um, we, 
what do they call it? Starship Popper. But um, we mentioned the number 1.4 and we eventually corrected ourselves to say that wasn't uh, the operating pressure, the operating pressure that they or the uh, um, the the actual burst pressure they got up to was 8.5 bar. And then the the 1.4 number was the safety factor. Um, and we kind of went back and forth amongst ourselves. And I guess uh, we didn't get the correct answer out at the very end uh, when all was, when all was said and done. So yes, uh, 1.4 was the, the safety factor. Okay. And then last episode, episode uh, 247, we were talking about the CST Starliner teleconference. Um, and there was a comment that was something like, uh, you know, you wouldn't want us to talk about something that we didn't have, uh, that we didn't have pinned down. So we didn't, we didn't announce that there, this was in reference to the, uh, the collision avoidance, the, um, thruster mapping issue. I credited it to, uh, Boeing and Chris G from NASA spaceflight credited it to Boeing, but it was actually Doug Lavaro, uh, from NASA who said that. So I just wanted to make a quick correction there. And then um, we have an, another email from Andrew. That's not a question. It's not, it's not really a kind, it's more of a, of a discussion that I, I really like. So I was hoping uh, David or Dennis, one of you could go ahead and read these excerpts that I've clipped out from his email and then maybe we can talk about it. Well, so the first question he asked, he says, wasn't Starliner somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean at the time of the MAT slash comms issue? Mm-hmm. So now what was, yeah, so uh, the emission elapsed time issue. Yeah, so actually that's a good question, wasn't it? Well, I think I think we actually mentioned it really quick in the recording uh, last week, but it was it was in one of the segments where we were going, okay, we'll cut this out. But yeah. It's a good question without an answer right now. Why was it a particularly noisy environment if it was right over the ocean? And then the second comment he made uh, was that NASA will do everything in its power to not force an OFT redux. So yeah, in orbital flight test repeat, they do not want to do that, huh? I mean, it's it's a little it's a little speculative, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think this is going to be something we expect it to happen. But don't don't hold your breath. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like that they have such a you know a culture of some might even say too much safety. Keep reading. We we've got more comments from Andrew on that topic. Okay. Which I really like. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So then he says, now let me read some tea leaves. Uh, People and organizations are creatures of habit. It's the old, you play like you practice or you fight like you train. If NASA is not willing to keep tight oversight now, at least of Boeing, they won't do anything different for moon missions. This is very old, ingrained, get their itis attitude. So. Do you know what get their itis is? Yeah, well, I assume it means like, you know, like we just have to get there. Like, you yeah. know, that's so, first so priority. It's, it's particularly in reference to to flying an airplane. So what happens is... Uh, oh, it, I'm not familiar with that then. Yeah, so so if you look at like uh, FAA uh, crash investigations and NTSB crash investigations, um, a mm-hmm. huge number of plane crashes, particularly GA, general aviation, um, you know, private mm-hmm. pilots, a, a huge number of these incidents are caused by get their itis where and, and it's it's sort of a fundamental part of human psychology where um, we get focused on solving a problem so focused that we forget that there are alternatives to solving that problem at all and so people will will focus in on okay how do we land this plane at this airport okay well there's you know the storm coming in how do I skirt around the storm and they they get into more and more dangerous situations because they're hyper focused on actually getting that done um, and ignoring all of the the surroundings all the context mm-hmm. um, and and I so I, I think I think Andrew's right I, I think this really is reading tea leaves right this isn't this this is all speculation. 
Um, but I think it's a, a pretty reasonable analysis of, of where we're headed is, you know, you play like you practice. I hope this serves as a warning to NASA that maybe, you know, they should stop doing that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so hard to do when you have an organization this big. I mean, you know, the, the point of bureaucracy is, is people joke about bureaucracy slowing everything down. Well, that's the point of bureaucracy. Um, we, we have bureaucracies in order to lend stability to a system. You know, we, we set up rules in order to slow down change, which allows, uh, big organizations to weather, to weather, you know, short storms, short squalls. Um, and it's, it's a benefit and a detractor and it, it's kind of why commercial space is so important is because we have a bunch of different organizations doing a bunch of different things. But, at, you know, anytime, you know, we wind up with old growth, um, there comes wisdom and also short sightedness to some extent. So I, I think it's an interesting perspective. And then the last thing he uh, noted was uh, SpaceX just hired William Griftenmeyer. Uh, so he was what the former, oh crap, what was his former title at NASA? Formerly of NASA, but I don't remember oh, his I exact can't title. I remember the title. It was, it was human spaceflight specifically, right? Yeah. Uh, Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations. Yeah. And so Jim Bridenstine let him go. At, at least that's my understanding. Um, like he was the one who specifically made the decision. I guess he has to be the one to make that decision. So yeah, he, he says uh, NASA let him go, and at the time it was inferred that that was because he wasn't pushing on the CC schedule hard enough to get people flying to ISS. Remember, also when Crew Dragon was flying Demo 1, the Russians were not happy about allowing it to attempt docking at the International Space Station. So at the time, that was played as Russian sour grapes for loss of Soyuz income, but maybe the Russians saw the same thing, a NASA willing to accept risks they should not have, and their cosmonauts not wanting to be on the receiving end of a bad outcome from said acceptance. At risk. So let's face it, NASA has just gotten caught again letting its political leadership overrule its technical leadership with poor results. So And let, let's be clear, this is this is way out in left yeah. speculation field, especially uh regarding uh Roscosmos. But it is a coherent message though. I mean it's right. <laughs> yeah. So Ger Gerstenmeyer going to SpaceX is really interesting. I I think if anybody needs like this old growth stability, SpaceX could definitely you know, SpaceX definitely tends to lean on the side of move fast. And so it's really interesting to have Gerstenmeier working for them. I, I don't know. It's it's just an interesting development, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how this how this uh, works out. But you know, having somebody who works completely uh, at right angles working on your reliability team, which is is what he's doing for SpaceX, I think is a huge huge benefit. Um, I think I think it's really really great. So, but but it's interesting to have this other perspective of well, if you know, NASA lost him. Well, you know, SpaceX gained him. That means NASA lost him. So thanks, Andrew, for, for writing in. I, I wish that our, our subreddit was more active because we used to have this kind of conversation going on over there and, and we, we don't really anymore. If this is something that's interesting to you, go discuss it on our subreddit and we'll, we'll see if we can do uh, more discussion next week, kind of summarizing what, what happens over there. Moving on to this week in spaceflight history. So we had some winners, we had some losers, and what's cool about this <laughs> clue that you had last week is that you got, like, we had a couple of wrong answers, yes. but they were still kind of right, but, I mean, not, but still, I liked them. They, they were applicable. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't right, yeah. but they weren't totally invalid. So our winners this week are Jason Friesen, Cy Kyle, and Sam Stadelman just 
barely in under the wire. Good job, Sam. Uh, <laughs> and uh, our clue from last week was, I'm a doctor, not a dot, dot, dot. I thought you had the damn it, Jim, as well. Did you not say oh, that? I don't yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, this week in Space Flight History is February 19th, 1932. is the birth of Joe Kerwin. So uh, we'll we'll get to the to the clue in a second here. Um, like, just just half a second. Um, so he uh, got a bachelor's of philosophy from the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts, and then went straight into a PhD of medicine at Northwestern Illinois. Uh, yeah, you, there there are people uh, who get PhDs with just a bachelor's, which is crazy. So then from uh, from Northwestern, he went on to uh, the Navy School of Aviation Medicine, and then he was a naval flight surgeon. In 1958, so I'll do the math for you. That's age 26. He was a flight surgeon. And while he was in the Navy, he racked up uh, 4,500 hours of flight time. I don't know if that is to date or if that was specifically in the Navy. I believe that's his his whole career. And then he was uh, selected for astronaut class four in June of 1965. And that made him the first physician selected for the astronaut corps. So that's where the clue comes from. I'm a, I'm a doctor, not a not an astronaut, although he ended mm-hmm. up, you know, actually being an astronaut. So, I, you know, he's he's got a cool career. But one of the things that really is near and dear to my uh, space nerd heart is that he was a Capcom uh, for Apollo 13. Um, and specifically, he was the Capcom that read up the instructions for the mailbox, um, the uh, the adapter to allow them to use the command module scrubbers in the LEM. So in the show notes, I'll have a link to not the full transcript. This is, I believe, just the Capcom loop. No, because that would be more crowded. So I think this is this is just the space to ground uh, segment. Um, you can, you can find the transcripts, uh, on NASA's website, but I, I picked just this one. So if you go in there, um, they begin to talk about, uh, the mailbox around, uh, 80 and a half hours. And then the actual description, uh, the, the actual instructions get read up right after 90 hours. And originally I was going to try to read, uh, the entire instruction set, uh, but it just, it, it's really long. So I'm, I'm going to read a couple of excerpts. So first we start out with LMP, that's Lunar Module Pilot, and that's Fred Hayes uh, <laughs> reading up. And this this is at 80 hours, 37 minutes. Uh, okay, you guys just tell me what sort of material you had in mind to build this mailbox out of, and Jack and I will go to work uh, to construct the thing. Uh, I assume there will be Space Age bailing wire or the gray tape and uh cc cap uh capcom and this this was before before kerwin came on shift but capcom at that point says uh, that's a firm we have a lengthy procedure here but in short you'll use the plastic as a covering for the whole thing you will put some kind of stiffener at the top so the plastic doesn't suck against the lioh entrance side uh you'll need gray tape to stick the whole thing together and you'll need something like a sock to put in the bottom so the outlet side is plugged up as it turns out the flow is rather u-shaped through the cartridge uh, so if you plug up the bottom it comes in one side of the top and goes out the other um, and then i've got a little clip from a half hour later this is uh, 90 hours 10 minutes uh, and this is actually joe Kerwin beginning to read out uh, the instructions but i'm just going to read the the ingredients here he goes okay i think the equipment you'll need will be two command module lithium hydroxide canisters a roll of the gray tape two lcgs 
because we're going to use the bags from the LCGs and one, uh, one lem cue card, one of those cardboard cue cards, which you'll cut off about an inch and a half out from the ring. All right. I think that's all we'll need over. And then they, they start actually putting the thing together. So I, Apollo 13, right? I mean, I don't need to say anymore. So then, uh, then Kerwin went on to be the science pilot for Skylab 2, which, you know, we've talked about, uh, extensively and will continue to do so on this show because <laughs> Skylab 2 was such a fantastic mission. Then he, uh, led the on-orbit branch of the astronaut office. So he coordinated shuttle payload operations, um, planned rendezvous, uh, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so all the on-orbit stuff. Then he became the senior science representative of NASA in Australia in the early 80s. And that actually prevented his flight, uh, prevented him from being selected for a flight on SDS-41C. Um, they were considering him, but they, they kind of felt like he was uh, stuck in in Australia. Um, then in the mid to late 80s, he was the director of space and life sciences at JSC. After that, he left NASA and he went to uh, go on to be the extravehicular systems project manager over at Lockheed. So he worked on Space Station Freedom. He actually was part of the team that invented SAFER, the simplified aid for EVA rescue, which is still in use today. That's pretty awesome. He also worked on the Assured Crew Return Vehicle. One of the possible options was HL-20, so like a, a sort of a flying wing concept, kind of a stubby flying, not, not flying wing, lifting body is what I'm thinking. Um, so sort of, sort of a lifting body that could be used as a uh, uh, as a lifeboat. Um, and then he actually worked on the procurement contract for FGB or Zarya, the, the first module of the International Space Station. Pretty cool career. Um, I gotta say, if you're, if you're only gonna fly in space once, getting to go not only hang out in Skylab, but to get to rescue it is a pretty awesome way to do it, including an EVA, you know, um, going, going and doing some space hacks and then, uh, getting to work. I mean, it, uh, it's, it's a fantastic career. I, I wish I could have, could have done that. I think that's a, that's a cool, uh, a cool path to walk. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad at all. Did you want to mention the other, the responses that we had to the clue last week? Cause I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the other potential, uh, news item was the birth of Majel Barrett, who ended up, uh, marrying Gene Roddenberry. Uh, she played Nurse Chapel and Luxana Troy and, you know, was the voice of the computer. And I, I just love Majel Barrett. Uh, but I didn't realize that she was born the same week. I think that's uh, that's pretty huh. cool. So next week, what is our clue for that one? So next week in 1936, the clue is white hot stick. 1936, white hot stick. Yeah. And we were sticking with the 30s uh, these weeks. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is a real tough one, guys. Yeah. There, there, I think there are a couple of jumps that need to be made made here to come up with the right answer. Ah. You know what? I'm actually I'm going to make this a little easier. White hot stick. Change the emphasis, and I think that becomes a little easier. Okay, white hot stick. So not white hot stick, not white hot stick, but white <laughs> hot stick. 1936, white hot stick. All right, well, if you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. You're going to need it. Well, let's move on to our one and only upcoming spaceflight event. So our one launch of the coming week is on February 20th. Uh, this will be a Soyuz 2.1A uh, with a frigate M upper stage, which will be taking Meridian M number 19L to a uh, Molnia orbit. And so this is a uh, military and civilian communications satellite 
for Russia. Uh, that's uh, been part of a series that's slowly replacing the uh, Molnia, the latest iteration of Molnias, which were uh, the Molnia 3, I believe. And so, um, or 3K. And so the launch itself is uh, February 20th at 0800 UTC with a window from 0800 to 1000 UTC launching out of Plisetsk cosmodrome in russia all right so that's your upcoming spaceflight event all right time to do the show and we would like to thank ronald jinkies and tim dot for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to our five dollar and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And that's all. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. See you.